This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, performance. the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located right on 42nd Street, right off 42nd Street, right off Times Square, where the beat and the magic of live theatre is, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway theatre all come together to share the wealth that is magic at theatre. This is just one of the many programs of the American Theatre Wing. But let me talk about the Tony Awards. We are possibly very well known, as most of you here know, for the Tony Award. It is not given for the longest run or the greatest box office hit, but for the achievement and recognition of excellence in the craft of theatre. And everything that the Wing does is based on that. From our newest program, which is called Introduction to Broadway, in which high school students are brought together with the cooperation of the Board of Education, High School Division, and the wonderful producers of Broadway that make available tickets so that we can provide theater performances to youngsters who are coming to the theater for the first time. They pay a very minimal price for this, but they do pay, and they make the commitment to come to the theater. Then we go all the way down to our Saturday Theater for Children program, which is exactly that. It is a program in which the youngest children come to school, and they line up on Saturday mornings in order to see a live performance. From these two, the end of the children, the very young children, and the high school students, will come not only the enrichment that is live theater, that nothing else can bring to them but live professional theater, but future audiences for the theater. That's what is so very important. And they will come not because they've read a great review, because they will have known what is good theater. And as such, they will come to see it no matter where it is. Our programs that we have been doing, and we've been doing for a very long time. We've had a very long run in this. And they all come out of a wonderful woman's concept, Antoinette Perry. In her honor, the Tony Award was created. But also, she had the thought that people had to give back. And there is nothing like the theater for giving back. We, we have a program, our hospital program. It goes into 
uh, hospitals and nursing homes and aid centers. And we bring professional theater, professional entertainment into these uh, institutions. And the performers have one thing to say when we thank them, and I, I'm constantly thanking people. It is always, oh, we get more out of it than they get from it. And it's a wonderful thing to hear. The seminars come out of our program for returning veterans in which the wing had a school. And in that school, returning veterans would come and cross over from what it is to work in the theater. From the producer's standpoint and from the production and from the dance, all of these were open to them. And what they had, what they learned, was then brought out into the community. All of the WINGS programs are based on that. We, are, we give education, we give enrichment, and we give entertainment. And I am very proud to say that the American Theatre Wing is able to call on almost anybody to help us in our programs. Today's program, which is based on the performance, is one of a series of seminars, and it is geared to give you an inside view of what it is to work in the theater, of what it is to work in the theater from the aspect of the performer all the way through to the producer, with the playwright, the union, the set designer in between, all telling the importance of how you must learn the craft of in the theater, being in the theater. And today's seminar on the performance is being chaired by George White, who is um, president of the O'Neill Center of uh, New London, Connecticut, and uh, is a director at Yale. He's a very good friend of the wing and a very, very staunch believer in training for the theater. Jean White, Jean Dalrymple, who is wearing her white hat today. <laughs> and uh, Jean is a member of the board and is an author, has been a director, and knows every aspect of the theater. I'm now going to turn these seminars over to George and Jean, who will introduce this very talented panel of performers to you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, just a little parenthesis. I've always thought of Jean as always having a white hat and being a white hat. So there we are. Um, and I've asked her to marry me many times, and she won't do it. Um, on my far right, which is not a political comment um, this year, um, is John Schneider, who is uh, fresh from the uh, a tour of Brigadoon, but was seen on Broadway last in Grand Hotel. Um, on his left uh, is Tanya Pinkins, who is currently in Jelly's Last Jam. And on my immediate right is Lucy Arnez, who is in Lost in Yonkers. Well, way down there is uh, Jay Binder. Binder, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Binder Casting, and he's responsible for all the wonderful people in Lost and Yonkers. And he's been making many changes and doing them all very brilliantly, as you know. And um, then a darling girl, Hallie Foote, is next. She's in the Roads to Home 
playing at the Lambs Club, and it's a darling show, and I hope you'll all see it. And right next to me is one of my favorites, my darling man, Gregory Hines. And of course, you know, he's made the success of his life in Jelly's Last Jam. And make sure you don't miss it. It's just wonderful. Great. Um, I, I thought we might start, uh, if we could, with Mr. Binder, um, since um, appropriately this is a casting director. And um, not that necessarily you all got here by way of him, but you may have by some of his counterparts. And I'd like to uh, ask uh, you, if I may, Mr. Binder, uh, an, a, a question that I'm sure is on everybody's lips or certainly in their hearts is, um, what do you look for? How do you get a job? Um, what do you look for when you decide, aha, here's somebody that, you know, I can take on or I will, I will cast. What do you, because we all hear about cattle calls and all of that. What stands out? What triggers something uh, for you when you see a, a, a performer? Uh, it seems easy what I'm going to say, but it's very true. Uh, when an actor auditions for a play or a musical, we don't choose the actor. The actor chooses us. When somebody comes in, audition for something and they grab that part and they make it theirs then it's an easy decision because they've decided you know they walk in the room they open their mouth they're that part and and they they own it and that's what you look <laughs> for because when someone walks in the room or walks on the stage and they read a part and there can be no argument amongst the creative staff because they own it that's what we look for now that's you know the the ultimate, the ultimate thing that happens, and it does happen a lot. And then there are various degrees of ownership, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's what you look for. You look for somebody that really understands it and hands it to you because it's theirs. How many people do you invite to take that chance? It all depends. It depends a lot on, um, there are some plays and some musicals that when you start to cast them, I mean, one person jumps to your mind. And if the director and the producer and the writers agree with you, then that's that one person. And if fortunately, if you're fortunate enough that one person wants to do it, is not doing a movie, or is not doing a television show, wants to commit the time to the theater, which is really what it's all about, and what we're against, <clears throat> because we fight against television, we fight against film in this country, and actors, uh, decide and commit to give their time uh, and their gifts to the theater. So that's a bit. Now, for, for a major musical, you can see hundreds of people. When we were doing Jerome Robbins' Broadway, which is an ensemble musical and directed and conceived by a very, very discerning man, uh, we, we saw hundreds of thousands of people. But that's the nature of the play. You know, in a play like Lost in Yonkers, uh, for the two kids, and we have two uh, um, young children in the show, we saw a tremendous amount of kids. Uh, for the adults, it was very easy, and it always has been since the play opened. I mean, we've been very fortunate that the people that we feel have been right for the parts have been wanted to join us. I mean, it, in, in Lucy's case, it was very clear the moment that you stepped on the stage, it was yours. Let me pick up on that a little bit, because, uh, uh, Lucy, you came into... Uh the uh, show um, 
after uh, and and had to, if you will, recreate a role by an already a Tony Award yeah. uh, winning um, actress. Right. How did you make that role? What did you do? First of all, obviously, you you grabbed a hold of it and, and did what we we're talking about. But uh, you know, I would think this whether you have to put out of your mind the pre per person previously or yeah. what do you Well, you, you just can't even think about it. I mean, if you dare think about it, then you've started off on the wrong foot already. You, it never even occurs to me what she did or didn't do. And I remember that the first time I saw Lost in Yonkers, Mercedes Rule was playing that part, and I was devastated by the part. I couldn't have been any more emotionally moved than I was. But uh, several months later, when I was approached... Um, I was approached actually one time earlier than that, but I was in Los Angeles with my family at the time, and I couldn't make that commitment to change at that time. And so I thought, well, see, timing. Timing is everything. There goes that chance. And uh, as it turned out, I moved back to New York permanently, and um, I had a whole other plan for my life. I had nightclub engagements and rainbow and stars. I was going another direction altogether, you know. And I got that call, and I thought, oh, my God, third replacement I haven't been on Broadway since they're playing our song. This is not a career move. And then I remembered the part. And I said, I want to do that part. I want that part on my resume. I want people to know that I can do that part. And I went and I looked at the part. And I uh, had to audition overnight. I had no time to prepare. I didn't even get the proper script. So I, I only just remembered how it affected me emotionally, who I thought that girl was, how it connected to me, or I wouldn't have been emotionally dissolved like that. And I literally cold read for it, sure. but something in it must have been me that was true. And of course, I went and worked on it after that, but I worked on it my way through my experiences and not trying to redo something somebody else did. And I guess it works better that and way. And nobody wanted, uh, I mean, the one thing that we've always tried to do uh, in that play is not try and recreate what was and not expect any actor who goes into the play to give the performance that has been given previously, mm -hmm. because it will never live that way. You know, and performing I, doesn't work that yeah, way it, anyway. It's, it's you only breathing, go from what's inside thing. of you, and if it's similar to someone else, it will only be that. Similar, it will never be the same. See, because we talk a lot in my office about the part falling out of somebody. You know, and so yeah, I mean, you do need to prepare for an audition, and anyone who says you don't is wrong. But there are points, and there are times, like in Lucy's case, where she didn't have a lot of prep time. Um, and, and her agents, which is another story, you know, although she's got fabulous agents, happened to get her the movie script instead of the play. But it was close enough, and, and she came in. And, and but what Lucy did, which is something that all actors should learn in the audition process, is she said to Gene Sachs and to Manny Eisenberg, listen, guys, I'm not going to run around the stage. I'm not going to just give this performance at, the, at this moment, because I can't. I'm going to sit down on the sofa. And in fact, we were on the set of Jake's Women which was so <laughs> ridiculous, right. you know. Uh, and so Lucy sat on the sofa and said, I'm going to sit and read it. And, but you can, you can just tell. The next day she came back in, she went out overnight, and then began to show us the results of what you had thought about. You know, and, uh, but I ask you, what on earth made you want to play that character? She was such a disagreeable old woman and you're such a lovely person. Wait, I'm playing the younger woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm playing oh, Bella. Oh, Bella. Someday oh, that's the like best part. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Wait, I want to go to Hallie. Yeah. 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 I want to follow up on this. I want to talk some more. I want to follow up on Hallie. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to that in a minute, Gene. Um, Holly, you have um, uh, the, uh, I, I know from a personal point of view that when you're, you're dealing uh, in the family, uh, and, and certainly uh, Rhodes is a, is, is a family affair, um, I would, uh, I, I don't know as I would want to myself work uh, and be directed by my father, who also wrote a piece. What is that like? Would you tell me? Disagree with me. Uh, it's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah. No, he's a wonderful director. And yes. actually, I think he understands his work um, better than anybody in some ways. Yeah. So um, it's been a real joy working with him. Um, I often joke with him and say sometimes we get along better when we're working together <laughs> in our personal lives. But because uh, we kind of leave everything outside the door. and. Um, you don't bring that uh, baggage no. with it's you. Been, some people that don't part know. of it's been sort of, because I've, I've heard people do have problems, and some people don't, but we don't. Um, did you have I, to audition for the role? This part, no, I didn't. <laughs> I have auditioned for other things for him, mm. but not this one. There's a moral there, isn't there? No. If you all want to work, just have your father write a play. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Uh, but no, that uh, that's unfair, But I, because you're wonderful. But... Uh, uh, that is an interesting thing that you sometimes people bring, you know, uh, in a family, they sometimes know too much and therefore. Well, I think uh, I certainly have an understanding of what he's written about. I mean, yeah. because he does write about people that I know. Um, yeah. I wasn't raised in the part of Texas that he writes about, but I've been around those people and I think I understand them. Well, speaking of a family affair, that brings me to uh, Mr. Hines, who started, uh, I mean, I guess next to Mozart, who was uh, a half a year older than you when he started performing. At three, I guess you started at two and a half with a family, and um, which I guess is a pretty good way to, to enter the, the business, perhaps. Uh, but tell me about uh, how you parlayed that into, I guess your Broadway debut was Hubie, as I remember. Isn't that right? Uh, actually, the first time I was on Broadway was in 1953 in a show called A Girl in Pink Tights, my brother and I. But UB uh, in 78 was the first time as a, a solo artist, yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, did you find that when you, uh, that that long experience must have paid off for you just in terms of, I would think, a certain kind of confidence with auditions and things like that. Isn't that so or not? Um, not, not so much auditions uh, as, as much uh, on stage. Just uh, over the years, I think that... Uh, um, a degree of, of self-confidence began. I began to feel more self-confident. But uh, auditions have always been. Um, uh, I've always felt insecure going into auditions. Um, I have tremendous respect for the, the the casting process, and 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 I I know that that um, that what you said is true. That that. Um, <clears throat> Most of the time, casting people are not really sure what they're looking for, but when they see it, they can recognize it. Um, it's just that uh, for me, I think in my heart of hearts, I always uh, resented the fact that I couldn't just walk in and they would say, you're the band we want. And there would be 15 or 20 other men there who, who uh, some of them I would, I would be aware of their talent, and that would also make me feel insecure. and, and uh, and even though it's not 300 men, like a cattle call, the fact that there are some other people there trying to get the part, it's, it's, um, it's hard to be relaxed and go in and do one's best work. Uh, but after auditioning for a few things and, and, and maybe 
staying in the running for a couple of callbacks and maybe not getting it, or then maybe getting a couple, I, w I, I began to get a bit more secure auditioning. But it, it, even now, it's still, uh, when I was just listening to what, you know, you, you went through auditioning on another stage, not even the stage, uh, another place. It's, it's, it's really tough for, to, to feel confident right. in those situations. Tell me, why do they audition stars? Well, they don't always audition. They don't always audition stars. Well, he was there, there absolutely are, perfect for the part. There are there are some people uh, that uh, don't audition, uh, and but I must tell you, uh, if an actor, no matter how big a star they are, an actor is an actor, and if you hand them a script, and in their heart, they have to do this play, they have to do this movie. They're going to audition. I mean, if the producer and the director say, we, we're, we think you'd be terrific in it, but you have to come in and read, you have to read it. If an actor really wants to do something, you will know that they're going to come in and read for you in a shot. If they're waffling around, the agent doesn't get it, it, it you don't know, you know. But I mean, it's, if somebody, if, if Gregory were in a situation by which Joy's Last Jam, right, was in a situation where someone had, had handed it to you in another situation, and you had read this. And if you had really wanted to do it, you would have auditioned yeah, for it. Yeah, definitely. If you, had, if you had waffled and said, well, I don't know, da -da 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 -da, you know, then maybe you wouldn't have. You would have said, make me an offer. Yes. I was just going to say that I love to audition. Um, it is my most favorite thing in the world. It is the only time when it is absolutely yours. Uh, I'm a control person. Mm -hmm. When I audition, I, cr I get to direct it, I get to make that character whoever I want it to be, and so it's wonderful. I set my beginnings and endings of it, and I make it my own little play. And it's this wonderful thing for me that I love to do, and whenever I can walk away from an audition knowing that I had an exciting experience in that process. It doesn't even matter to me whether I got the job, because generally I know if they didn't like that, we weren't going to have a good time working together because I showed right. them what right. I liked. It's true. It's true. No, but it's true. I got a whole what you're going to say, because I want to hear about John. How did you feel about? I would have. I would have crawled over hot coals to audition for Grand Hotel. Uh, and, and did and had to had to come from the mountains. And did, I live in the mountains, so I had to had to go quite a distance. <laughs> I do. I live in the mountains, and it was we it was that. it was quite a quite a thing. But when it, when I heard that that, as you say, when you when you uh, I had seen Grand Hotel, and I I I wanted it. You know, it wasn't in the offing at the time. I just wanted it. You know, if it, if it ever comes up, folks around me, let me know. I really want to go try to get that. But by the same token. Uh, there are things when, when you're in this business, uh, there's opportunity to audition for a lot of things. And it's hard, you know, uh, maybe, maybe two or three things come up in your, in your acting life that you just have to do. And I love what you just said because there, there are times uh, the question after an audition from your, from your agent, from whoever, is always, well, how'd you do? <laughs> and, you know, in, in any other business, you'd say, well, I did great and therefore the job would follow. In this business, that's so wonderful. You can go in and do a terrific audition and not get the job. Absolutely. Uh, but isn't it nice to know when you walk out? I did that a couple of weeks ago or a month ago. I auditioned for something and uh, I walked out and I thought, you know, that was really fun. If I never 
do anything else with this project. I know that I've that I've I've taken my shot. I've I've directed my little play, and it was a delight. Film, it's a whole different story. I mean, film, you audition for, you know, you read a page of dialogue, half a page of dialogue, or, or you know, it's not it's not the same as a play. Uh, it's a frightening, frightening thing. Aren't you? Pardon? You're auditioning for the camera. See how you're auditioning for the camera, yes, right. but you're also aud auditioning with someone who is not in the profession that you're in. They're, they don't do what you do, no. so, you know, you're there. And I'm one of these people that... Uh, that likes to have the lights, you know. In, in Dukes of Hazard, if I had to act like I was driving a car, I would have been awful. I mean, thank God there was a car there for me to drive, you know. And, and the audition process is: you sit down on a chair, and they say, "Okay, now you're in a you're in a 48 Studebaker, and uh, and somebody just threw a bomb in the car. What do you do?" And you say, "I'm sitting in a chair. <laughs> At least turn the lights off or something. I don't know. I don't know what." To a television. It's frightening. Television is the worst uh, to audition for. Isabel, can I just make a comment that I am feeling very old today because, you know, I did 150 shows at City Center and I just said, I want this one and I want that one and I want that star and I want this one for the... And that was it. I never auditioned anybody. Well, I think this that is that's a, a whole new difference. thing to me. Well, their work was harder to get then, but in a sense, it was easier because everybody knew each other. And producers were in business, as Jean was, and year after year she was there and she knew just who to call. And that made life a little bit simpler, both for the performer and for the producer as well. It's changed, as we all know. And, and Evidently. Yes, but you, you've all managed the change. Very well. I'd like to find out how you got to this, to where that you know where you you came from. Where did you get? What's your background? I'm very I'm happy to hear it Gene, too. That's, that's our favorite question. That's our generation. I'd like to, if I may, start with with Please. Tanya about this because you have moved also from uh, the uh, straight plays um, to musical, to musical, and uh, what? Where did you start? How did you start? And how did you make the shift? And and uh, who, who did you tell about that? So people would say, oh, well, you're just a, uh, you know, a, uh, you don't do musicals, along with floors and windows or whatever. Actually, my story is the opposite story. Um, I started out in Chicago uh, when I was about 15, studying at the St. Nicholas Theater with Stephen Schachter and, and, and Greg Mosier and David Mamet. And um, when I was um, 17, uh, Greg Mosier had taken over the Goodman, and I got to do a play in my senior year in, in high school. And, went away to the Kennedy Center and did that play. And then my first year in college, um, I was going away for Christmas break, and my teacher from grammar school called and said, they're auditioning for the new Hal Prince D. Sondheim musical, Come Home. I'm like, I'm going to Puerto Rico. <laughs> I'm not going to get a Broadway show. And he's like, no, you have to come and audition for this. I'm like, well, am I going to see Hal Prince? He's like, no, you have to go through the casting director first, and then you have to go to Hal Prince. And I was like, forget it. I'm not coming. I'm going to my, on my vacation. But he succeeded in convincing me to come back. And I got through the first audition with the casting director, got through an audition with Harold Prince, and was brought to New York and cast in Merrily We Roll Along, um, like two months into college. And that show started a year later. So I came to New York in a musical. And then spent about the next four years not being able to get auditions for straight plays. 
um, because everybody said you're a singer, you're, you're, a, you're, you're a musical actress. So I then did a soap opera and did musicals at the same time and left the business. Uh, got married, had children, and went back to acting school with a man named William Esper and decided that when I came back I was only going to do straight plays and started off with um, Joe Turner's Come and Gone and Piano Lesson. And when Jelly's Last Jam came up, the only reason that I was willing to do it is because I knew that if it was George Wolfe, it would not be the kind of work that anybody would go, oh, that's musical theater acting, that I would get a chance to do work that nobody would say, oh, you're just a musical theater actress. And that's why I took that chance. I hope that it pays off and that I don't get pegged again, but I did go that route. Uh, one other thing I want to say is that I did Jelly's Last Jam in, uh, in L.A. at the Mark Taper Forum. We did it there for about four months. And when the show got to come to New York again, I had to audition again to do the show for the workshop. So I, you know, I was hurt, but I loved this part so much that it was important to me to go in. As my girlfriend said, make sure you can, the story should be not that you wouldn't go in and audition for them, but that you went in and you did a fabulous job and they didn't give you the job. That's the better why, story. <laughs> may I ask, why, why did you have to do that? What, what was the reason for having you audition again? Well, having seen you do all these performances? I think that they were not, um, they, what I had done was not what they had wanted. And when they saw me audition again, what was conveyed to me was that, in, that the whole time I had done it, they always felt they wanted the role to be done differently. <laughs> and when they saw it in an audition process later and they saw it compared with what they thought they wanted, they realized that this was the better way to go. Uh -huh. Right. Um, Holly, I wanted to ask you, what, what was your beginnings as an actress? Tell me a little bit about how you... I began late. My father um, is a writer, and I've sort of been around the business um, all my life, but he was always determined to sort of keep us as far away from him as possible. So um, I grew up in uh, New York until I was 16, and then they moved us to New Hampshire. When I went to college, I got married. I didn't really... I was sort of floundering. And one day, I just decided I wanted to try acting. So I was about, I guess I was about 20, I was it was late for, for most people, I guess. I was like 23, 24. And I remember saying to my father, I think I'd like to try acting. And there was this pause. Because <laughs> I think he thought, you know, he'd sort of escaped having to deal with that. And he said, well, if you want to do this, you should study with somebody. So I ended up going to Los Angeles and studying with uh, a woman named Peggy Fury and a man named William Trailer. And I studied for about three, four years, and then I came to New York and started working. Right away? Mm -hmm. Actually, I did a play of my dad's, brought me here uh -huh. at HB, and uh, that was it. Great. <laughs> Gregory, when you weren't in the Los Angeles, uh, um, you weren't in the Los Angeles production of Jelly Well at the beginning, no. were you? No. How did that, what happened? <coughs> well, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, after having been involved with with the development of the of the show from I guess 1985 up until 90, it was it 90 or 91 that you did in Los Angeles? Right? 91. Yeah, um, it had gone through a lot of different changes, and George Wolfe had come aboard, and, and uh, I really had tremendous respect for George and 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 um, and what he had done, but. He had made some changes in it that that I didn't uh, I didn't like, and uh, at that point George and I had a real uh, argument, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I felt that I I didn't want to go any further. I mean, as you know, my wife 
was one of the producers, so I felt very connected to the piece, but at that point I felt like I, I, that wasn't the piece that I wanted to do. And George wanted to do that, and he wanted to see it. He wanted to put it up in Los Angeles and see it. So at that point, um, for all intents and purposes, I was out of it. And, uh, and Pamela, my wife, she, she continued to encourage me to come see it in Los Angeles and try to stay open to it, and that she still wanted to have this experience for us to have this experience together, her producing and me being in it. And, uh, and then I went to see it in Los Angeles. And when I saw it, I saw uh, what George was trying to say. And, and I saw that he didn't have it completely together, but, uh, but what he did have together, I thought it was great. And um, at that point, I, I, uh, I got back in touch with George, and George was open to me. I was very grateful that he wasn't, you know, that he didn't say, look, you know, you didn't. We, we began to talk about it again, and, and, uh, and that, so I was, I was back on board and very happy to be back on board. And were you on the tour? Uh, no. At that point, uh, uh, the show had its run at the Mark Taper, uh -huh. and then um, the following November, we organized a workshop and did a workshop mm -hmm. because even though the, the show was a tremendous success at the taper it was still uh, almost impossible for them to raise any money because of the the um, <clears throat> the nature of the piece it, it, it's not and was never uh, under George Wolf a, a, um, a musical for the stage that is typical of African-American musicals and, and with the, with the flair. Yeah, you know, there were, there were elements that were shocking and uh, very disturbing and, and, uh, and very original, so original. So it was, you know, potential investors were hesitant to invest in that because they thought, you know, uh, it's too dark. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but at that point, I was very happy to be back involved, and and um, and uh, the process of working. Uh, you know, I feel the same way as Tanya uh, about George Wolf now. You know, the process of working with George has shown me that that um, um, it is possible to to uh, perform in a musical under someone like George Wolf, and and not be. Um, typecast as someone who, who is just a musical performer because it, it demands so much more. Also I, I shows mean, that wives know best. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, uh, no commercials, please. Um, the, uh, Lucy, uh, we were talking about uh, people who grew up sort of in the business. Um, and we have actually three people here for sure who have done that. Um, Hate nepotism, don't you guys? <laughs> no, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, me too. Uh, but, uh, well, but again, uh, sometimes that's uh, an advantage, sometimes a disadvantage. Tell, tell us about your beginnings, definitely. Well, you know, I mean, I think it, it helps. It, it clearly helps to be around people who love to do what you want to do and do it well. I mean, you watch a great shoemaker make a good pair of shoes, you could learn from the best. Uh, if it bores you to make shoes, you won't learn no matter what. Uh, it's just, it's something I wanted to do from a very early age. And I, I went about it backwards. Most people work doing a little play here and there and whatnot and, and pray to get a television series one day. I started on a television series that was in the top ten for six years. And uh, I learned a lot of good things because we worked with a lot of famous people. Every week they had a guest star. I mean, everyone from Wally Cox to Carol Burnett to the Burtons to... 
and you can certainly learn from watching other people do what they do, right or wrong, you know. But um, you, you also pick up a lot of bad habits because you're on a weekly three-camera audience-oriented stand on your mark and speak up and, you know, it's very cut and dried. You, you develop a lot of bad habits. And uh, Vivian Vance was a constant guest star in the last years of Here's Lucy. And one, one year, when I guess it was about 1973, she said to me, what do you do on your hiatus? Which is the time they give you off from making the show over here. And I started to list all of the beautiful vacation spots in America. And she said, girl, you're from the theater. Because I used to do plays in high school, and I had my own little theater company in the garage when I was about 10. And she remembered that, and she said, your first love is the stage. Don't you get stuck on a situation comedy for your whole life. Now, coming from somebody who had probably the best part in show business as Ethel Mertz, I listened and I thought, my God, she's right, she has. It's been hard for her to get out of being typecast as that. And I took her words to heart and I started auditioning. And uh, a season later, I spent my hiatus doing cabaret and Once Upon a Mattress and the whole summer circuit and uh, breaks of all that and learning from that, which led to uh, my auditioning from Michael Bennett and did the National Company of Seesaw, which talking about directors who will not set you off like a musical comedy performer. I mean, nobody could work with anyone better than Michael in that respect. He taught me so much about being real and not going for the laughs. And uh, that led to Annie Get Your Gun in Jones Beach for a summer and things like that. And Neil Simon, and, and uh, they're playing our song. And and I don't know Broadway. where I'd be today if she hadn't said that to me. <laughs> what was the first to Broadway? The first Broadway show was they're playing our song. And interestingly enough, talk about auditioning and not knowing whether you did a good job. I was the second person, I think, that Neil and uh, Manny saw. I auditioned here in New York while I was in Annie Get Your Gun. And I thought I, I sang two songs that I wrote. I'm sort of a closet lyricist myself. And I thought, well, that's good. She's a lyricist. I'll sing, <laughs> sing something I wrote. And I forgot my lyrics. <laughs> I was so nervous. And when it was over, Neil came up. And I'll never forget it, because he came up on the stage. And he took my hands. And he kissed my hands. And he said, you're such a breath of fresh air. And I didn't hear from him for six months. I mean, it was like the longest period of three months, whatever it was. It was, they saw everyone in show business after me. And I thought, well, I was terrible. I must have been the worst thing. They said, no, we have, like, appointments. You do that, right? Appointments to see people here and in California. And I used to wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat because that part was my part. I knew that was my part, and I would just go, oh, God, please, oh, I have to play that part. And sure enough, it came back around. I mean, I read that everyone from Cher to Bette Midler to everyone had that part. It was in all, everybody's PR agent was working overtime. Next thing I knew, they said, come back. Marvin wants to hear you sing, and you'll go to the theater, and you'll sing for Marvin. And I got it, and I couldn't believe it. I thought I'd lost it months ago. So you never know. Uh, John, where, where did you... When I come down to the hills, I'm from New York, from a little town called Mount Kisco, New York, which is not far from you. Exactly. And uh, my father is uh, was in automobile upholstery and general aviation, and my mother worked for IBM, so naturally I wanted to be in the theater. Sense to me. It was as as unusual as uh, sitting one Fourth of July watching a movie called Yankee Doodle Dandy. I was I was eight years old. And there was Jimmy Cagney singing and dancing and acting and doing the most wonderful job, but having the most wonderful time. And uh, as I said, I was eight years old. I, I weighed 
close to 200 pounds at the time. I was, I was pretty heavy, heavy. Uh, can't say I was ever a little boy. I was a heavy, heavy big boy, and decided that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, grew up watching lots of television. Grew up going to the movies. Saturday was always uh, matinees and, and uh, you know double features, and. I, I thank God that it was that movie because there was a there was someone who could legitimately uh, justify being on the stage, uh, musicals, uh, being a, a dramatic actor as well, and also being in the movies. Jimmy Cagney was was in that movie. Was really all things to all thespians. And uh, first play I did was the Mikado up in uh, at Fox Lane. They had a, a summer uh, theater company that they did there. Uh, then I did Little Abner. Uh, little Abner was uh, 35 years old, which at the time seemed ancient. <laughs> and I was uh, I was playing one of his friends. I was almost six feet tall, and I was nine years old. Uh, yeah, it was it was very very strange. Uh, and then then ten, Dukes of Hazard happened. Well, there was a lot of things that happened. There were a lot of plays and things between the. Between eight years old and Dukes of Hazard. Dukes of Hazard started when I was 18. Uh, did you did you get some training in the in their end Not not officially. It was it was more on the job training. I I, I have uh, I, I did about 15 musicals, a couple of plays. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the Board of Education in Atlanta. I went to high school in Atlanta. Uh, gave me credit somehow. I don't know how. It's like it's like I've I've kind of been nurtured along by people all along the way. They they gave me a language credit and an English credit for for uh, and a music credit for for writing and being in and traveling with a, a children's uh, theater show in Atlanta. Dukes of Hazard came from a cattle call audition in in Atlanta. Uh, I went in and I I I just more than just wanted it. I knew it and I don't know how, but like you said, I I just I thought this. Someone has been following me around and wrote this for me. Here I am from New York playing a Southerner. But, but uh, auditioned for that there and then came out for a, a, a similar audition process you're talking about. It was uh, five and a half weeks in Los Angeles with the screen test thing happening. Uh, but I would audition. I would rehearse with people all week and then audition for the network, which is like sitting around a, a room full of people in suits going like this. The worst. <laughs> oh, so I did that at 18 years old for for five and a half weeks. And any given moment, would either be sent home with a with a, a pat on the bat's back saying thank you, or sent home with a job. And and finally, by the time that they found Tom Wopat, thank God they found Tom Wopat from an old audition. He auditioned months earlier here in New York. He was doing I Love My Wife, and he went to some audition for some show called Dukes of Hazard. And six months later, they called him and brought him out to to pair him up with me to see how the two of us looked. And the next day, uh, I got the call, you know, you and, you and Tom Wopat are the, are the Dukes of Hazard. We started a week later in 1978. We started back in Georgia, 20 miles from where I went to high school doing this, doing this show. But that was five and a half weeks of, of, of hell because they were, the, the carrot was, the carrot wasn't in the next room. The carrot was right there. And, uh, Isabel, could I say a word? Because really, I feel so strange. I really feel as though I'm on a different planet. <laughs> it's all completely changed. And it's not very long since I was producing, a couple of years. But it's all different. 
there's been and extraordinary I, changes yeah. taking place. And I have learned so much that I think now I'll go back into producing. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you would. We I'm all for that. We can use you. It sounds much easier having these casting directors and auditions and all of that. What happened on Broadway? I'm going to get back to you, John. When did you get uh, what happened on Broadway? I saw Grand Hotel, and uh, the, some things were happening behind that uh, with my agent, with managers, with, with folks that uh, they knew that the apartment was going to be coming. Have you been studying singing? Have you been studying? I started singing from another another thing about about just kind of pushing me along. I had uh, I was an asthmatic little little boy, and uh, one of the things the doctors told me to do was blow up balloons to uh, <laughs> to increase my lung capacity, and and I. You can ask any, you can ask my brothers, ask my father, my stepmother. I was always out in the backyard uh, singing, making a loud noise. For whatever reason, I don't know. And uh, that turned into a very loud, very overweight, very uh, <laughs> <laughs> a big, not so little boy. Amazing you got anywhere. It is, it is. Yeah. When, I, when I, I got a call to come audition for Tommy in uh, in Los Angeles, I came off the mountain, as as it were. Tommy Toon. Yeah, Tommy Toon. And uh, auditioned for the, the show down there and, and sang this wonderful song called Love Can't Happen. And uh, as, I, as I told you, it was something I really, really wanted to do. My name is Schneider, and, and it was one of those other things where I thought, this, this baron, this German baron, I mean, won't this make... Won't this won't this be wonderful if I can if I can get to do this? Um, so I went and auditioned, and I, I uh, learned much later that what you said is is absolutely true, and it was true in the Dukes of Hazard. They just had to fight for it because there's a lot of other people, other than the director or the producer, that they have to convince. And uh, Tommy trying to convince Broadway that this this guy that they best remember for jumping in and out of a car can play a German Baron circa 1928. Uh, he had some convincing to do. Um, so I came back. They had me months, a month later, had me come back and audition for the money. And uh, make no mistake, you audition for the money. What does that uh, mean? That means the producers, the people, the people whose, the backers, uh, the, backers the people whose dollars and, and cents are on the line, um, sang for them in a, in a great thing. You know, the, the light is in your eye. Uh, you have no idea who's out there. You don't know if there's one person or 20 or who they are. And you know it's it's this kind of thing, and you, you sing your song, you you act your scene, and uh, they say thank you, and then you wonder. <laughs> but I, I didn't wonder long because the next day they uh, they had uh, they made the call, and uh, about a month later I was I was on the same stage, rehearsing for two weeks. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, and apparently this is this is pretty rare to even have this much time. Tom Opat just went into. Guys and Dolls with a with a week's audition. Uh, pardon me, with a week's rehearsal. Mm -hmm. Grand Hotel. Everybody else was already doing the show. They had done it for quite some time. I was the new kid on the block, and had two weeks to learn all the blocking and learn the songs much, and learn everything. How many How many people were working with you in those two weeks that were two in people. the cast? No one. Just <laughs> no one that's in the cast. You work with the stage manager and the dance captain. Does anybody come in at any point? Right before uh, I open on a Monday. And uh, Monday, uh, pardon me, Friday before the Monday I open, there's what they call a put-in. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where the cast comes in and, and uh, 
uh, drags himself in out of their, their regular lives and does an extra show that day for the new kid on the block. And it's uh, there were 33 people in the, yeah, there were 33 people in, in Grand Hotel, 32 other than me. So it was uh, it was quite an experience. What about you, Lucy? Is the same? Yes, it's exactly the same. And I got two weeks, but you don't get a real two weeks if you work on the set because you can't rehearse on matinee days. And you know there are two of those, three of those, counting no weekends, no matinees. So basically, it was about seven days all told. And, uh, yeah, you work with the understudies. I worked with the understudies and the stage manager until the day before with the put-in. And uh, it was sufficient for what we did because three of us went in at one time. We had um, Ann Jackson and Steve Vinovich and I all went in, which was wonderful. I, that really was a huge decision on my part as to whether I wanted to go in at that point because I thought, well, wow, they're really going to change over a whole part yeah, of we the company. In, in yeah, that was lucky. But and we've put in uh, four people since then. Uh -huh. New children, new fathers, new grandmothers, and each time we have to go and back and do the put-in rehearsal, and I'm on the other side now. It's I go, fun to be on that do this side. again, you Isn't know. Isn't it fun? With, with well, Grand Hotel, the people there were so wonderful, because the Baron wanders around a lot in the hotel, and if you don't sit in the right place, you'll get run over, or you'll get tripped over, and they don't want either one of those things to happen. So I'd go to sit down and have my cigarette case and things, and, and one of the bellhops and Tommy Toon casts short and tall, and there, there are very few people in the middle. And one of the bellhops would come and say, excuse me, sir, you don't really want to sit there, do you? you <laughs> <laughs> they, people, they help you. They help you. I, I had to go into my one and only. I, um, they did the national, international company of my one and only, and Sandy Duncan left, and I replaced Sandy, and I was in it for nine months, but I re replaced her. It's just like being put in a Cuisinart. I mean, it's you. You can't believe it. You, you, when you were jump rope as a kid, you know, and they do the jump ropes, and you have to jump in without getting tripped. <gasps> That's what it, going into a musical was like. That oh, in front one of a night it was. But you just yeah. touched on that, both of you. You said that the cooperation of the people in the already in the show, despite the fact that oh, one, yeah. one more show, but oh. they were oh, no, cooperative they, and they were good and they do help. Also, because if a show's been running a long time, a six months, any new blood is an infusion. It, it you know, it wakes mm -hmm. you up That's while you're point. out there. It's a new reading, a new, you know. Thank God. Uh, even no matter how good a performance is, you can use a little, you know, wake up and wake up. Hello. You, know? you really can't work alone. Gregory, it's been ten years since you been on a seminar, and, and that was Sophisticated Ladies, I guess. Uh, yeah. Can you remember how you wanted that part? You described it so. Graphically, I could say. Well, I remember. I remember Yubi. Actually, it was it was the part in Yubi that I wanted because I had um, I had been living in Los Angeles and uh, I had come back to New York and and uh, a couple of days after I got back, I got a part in this in this uh, musical that was called The Last Minstrel Show, uh, which it actually turned out to be the the very last <laughs> minstrel show <laughs> closed in Philadelphia. But uh, as it was closing in Philadelphia, they were they were having auditions for Yubi, which was uh, going to be a, a review of the music of, of the late Yubi Blake, who at the time was 94. And uh, so we heard about it, and and we were coming back. We knew we were closing for good, and filling with members of the company were coming back and auditioning. And I I came back and I auditioned, and uh, I thought I gave a great audition, and I was I was. I was very turned on at the time because I had gotten the last minstrel show and I felt like I was going to get this one too. And uh, I auditioned and then the, 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 a couple of days later I found out I didn't get it. And uh, I was really shocked. <laughs> and uh, so what I did was 
I called up the producer, who Ashton Springer. I called him up and I said, "Look, and he didn't know me. He wasn't even at the audition. You know, he was a director and a company." I said, "Look, I, my name is Gregory Hines, and, and I auditioned for UB, and I was told I didn't get it." I said, "There must be some mistake. <laughs> somebody, so somebody must. There must be some kind of mistake in communication." I said, "Because uh, I can't figure this out." He said, "Well, I don't know what to do." I said, "Well, I, I'd like another audition." I said, "I, uh, I just feel that uh, that I'm the man for this thing." So, uh, so I called him up like, you know, four or five times every day for about uh, three days, and finally, my agent, who really wasn't my agent, he was he was an agent for my brother who was like helping me out, and he he said, well, they they said they're going to give you another audition. He said, I can't figure this out. I said, well, listen, just when is it? So I go in and I audition again for the director, and uh, and uh, this time I you know just pulled out all the stops. I mean, I just. So I came out of there and I felt really good. So uh, the next day I found out I didn't get it again. <laughs> so, so, so now, so now I'm calling up the, so now I'm calling the producer, <laughs> and, and he said, "Look, I can't interfere with my creative staff." I said, "You don't know what you're doing." <laughs> I, said, I said, "I can take this part." I'm hounding this guy. I'm instituting a reign of terror on him. <laughs> then I find out that the guy they want. Who was a guy named Larry Marshall? Was a very talented guy. He was in Paris doing Porgy and Bess, and so they wanted him, and they're calling him and calling him. So I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I feel like I gave the best I could give, and you know, I've, I've hounded him enough. That's that. So now, two nights later, I'm over at my ex-wife's house, and I'm giving her a check for our daughter to go to camp. I'm giving her like, you know, I had like. Three hundred and fifty bucks in the bank. I'm giving her like a check for two fifty, no. and her phone rings in her house. She picks up the phone. She says, uh, "It's a woman for you." So now I think, "Oh, this is exactly what I need <laughs> to complete my week." So I get on the phone. The woman says, "Is this Greg Ash?" I says, "Yes." She says, "Well, I'm calling for uh, Ashton Springer, and you know, you've got the part." Wow. In UB. And you know, <laughs> I tell you, just just talking about it, I, I I feel that emotional feeling because, uh, first of all, I tried to explain to my ex-wife that you know this is what happened. <laughs> you know, she took the check and said, you know, get out of here. <laughs> I want any women calling. I actually I actually went out of her house. This was in April. I went out of her house and I was w w dancing down the street. I was like Gene Kelly. I was actually in the street, clicking my heels <laughs> up in the air. And from that point on, I realized that. In addition to the um, those feelings of self-confidence and how we have to we have to uh, uh, prepare ourselves to, to audition, we also have to have uh, tremendous aggression. I think it takes tremendous aggression to 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 try to get work in this business. A lot of a lot of other talented people, not that many opportunities, and it takes. Something more than just when somebody says thank you. I think that's a, a, also a classic example of the tenacity that's needed in the theater. The confidence that you know that you're good and you want the job and keep going back for it. And I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful story. I've, I've, I've never forgotten and I think it should be used by almost everyone that has to go through the process of audition. Absolutely the same thing with Seesaw. I mean, Seesaw was my biggest break. If I could do the national company of some show and to audition for Michael Bennett and to be in a show with Cy Coleman and Dorothy Field, Tommy Toon, 
it was the beginning of all of these, you know, certainly Tommy's first big break. And I auditioned here in New York, and I did what they told me to do. I sang a ballad and read a scene, because that's what they didn't think I could do. And I did it really well. I worked with David Craig for years and years and years. I mean, I knew what I was doing. And I was told it was a Thanksgiving holiday. God forbid you ever audition on a Thanksgiving holiday, because everybody leaves town right after the audition on Thursday. And I went back to my hotel. I had phone in from L.A. And, and I called, and they said, well, they've all gone away for the Thanksgiving holidays, and we won't know till Monday. So I had to stay for extra whatever, just in case they wanted me to come back. And Monday morning they called, and they said, no, you didn't get the part. And I was absolutely, I just, I went, no. Yes, I did. Nobody's, no, I did. What's, wait a minute, we'll find out why. They were ready to just tell me no and go on. And I found out by asking and asking and asking that it was Cy Coleman who said, well, I don't think she can belt which means belting singing, you know, up very loud. I said, well, they didn't ask me to belt. They specifically said belt. I said, well, where'd he go? <laughs> He's going to be in L.A. I went back to L.A., found out where he was, forced him to sit down and listen to me sing again, and I got the part. <laughs> I sang every because song Ethel Merman ever recorded until he said, <laughs> all right, all right. Allie, I, it doesn't always turn out that way, I know, but uh, it shows that it can it turn can, out that absolutely. way. Especially it's if you feel it so strongly that you think wonderful piece of advice. Oh, yeah. but it, it, Everybody it, it, it happened in reverse. But I, I wanted to ask Hallie before we have to change. How do you feel about this? Did you ever have to? I do wish that? I was more aggressive. I'm going to try and be more aggressive. I think it's true. <laughs> <laughs> we'll support you. Would you, would you go? Would you go knocking back? Would you go yeah, on well, and I on? I think maybe I'll try that next time. I've had a Good. sense sometimes. Sometimes you do know. I've had a, one time. I had a director follow me out of an audition, and I thought, I've got this part. He followed. It was the strangest thing. I've never had that happen before since. But um, I was auditioning for a. Um, Separate but equal for George Stevens. And he followed me out and asked me who I was auditioning. I ended up playing Burt Lancaster's daughter, but he said, Who would you like to play your father if you played this part? And I thought, He's going to give me this part. <laughs> and he did. That was very nice. Yeah, Mr. You, you said it can happen in reverse. I was going to save him for when we come back because we're okay. going to have to take a break. So hold on to what you want to say. Miss Tani, what about you? Um, I've never gone after a part like that. I really. The only time I'm insistent about being seen again, and I've gotten to the point where now, if in the middle of an audition, I don't think I did it well, I'll stop and say, let me do it again, so I can at least leave with a sense of, you got what I do, and if that's not it, fine. Mm -hmm. This is most unusual, because in, almost in every panel we've had, auditions bug performance, you know, it and it's here it's been so enlightening. To, to this and this, and I think it's also very Certainly. enriching for people to hear that it, you, you can beat the system. You have to leave I, your ego in the trash can on the way into the room. You're but really you also have to have ego, too, to say, well, I'm good and I know that I want it. It's an ego thing. It's not a, why are they asking me to audition ego. You have to get rid of that guy and get the other one that uh -huh. says, you're doing this better than anybody else who can walk in this room at this moment and just show them how well you can do it. You, know? yeah, you're, 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 you are right for it. <laughs> We're going to have to break right now and when we come back, we're going to have questions both from the audience and from me and from everybody on the panel. So just take a deep breath and, and come right down. Everybody stand up and sit right down again. Okay? Great. That's a break. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This panel is on the performers what it is to work in the theater as a performer, what it takes to get there, how you get there, how you hold on to it, and how you just have to have 
guts, I guess is the word that we've been talking about, and talent as well. And today's panel certainly has all of that. George White, who was co-moderator with Gene Dalrymple, is going to continue this discussion with these very fine and talented performers. Thanks, Isabel. Before we were so courteously interrupted, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, wanted to, uh, I was about to ask Mr. Binder about, uh, first of all, uh, he had mentioned, and you had mentioned, uh, sir, the, uh, the business of sometimes this aggression, the chutzpah, can be, uh, can work against you. A little bit about that. And then, uh, because we are going to go to questions, if you could begin sort of wrapping up by saying, telling us a little bit about how you got your job and how you started, too, which is a kind of uh, a little different take on things. We've all been talking about how badly, you know, actors want a part. When we were doing Jerome Robbins Broadway, it was a situation by which no one really knew what the show was going to be. And we knew from Jerry that it was going to be, you know, Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof and the Phil Silver's material from High Button Shoes and, and, and Zero Mostel's material from Form. But we really didn't know what the show was. And, and he, we had a nebulous idea that there would be one person that would have to do all this material, which I was going, oh, God. You know, how can there be one person that can really fill all these shoes? And we kept asking actors to come in to audition for Jerry Robbins. And everyone kept saying, no, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be Zero Mostel. I don't want to be Phil Silvers. How can I, you know? And so we had a, a real problem. And I had decided that it should be somebody young. You know, that it should, should, we should give new life to these shows. It's the only way we were going to get around it, you know, and make the shows fresh. And so uh, I knew uh, that there was one actor that I dreamt would play the part because I wanted it to happen for Jason Alexander so badly because, I mean, I've known Jason my whole life. And I knew he could do it all, and I knew that Jerry Rollins would love Jason. And I kept calling Jason, he was in California, no, I don't want to do it. No, every day I would call him. No, his, his agents, Jason, his wife, everybody. You know, they kept saying, stop calling. You know? And finally, you know, because there was a lot of material to learn before you auditioned for Jerry Robbins, like the whole show, you had to learn. <laughs> anyway, so finally I, I roped Jason into New York. He was, uh, and I grabbed him. I said, you have to do this. And I re we rehearsed the audition. And 10 minutes before he was supposed to come in for Jerry Robbins, he said, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to just be a narrator. I went, oh, God, what am I going to do? And Jerry Robbins, who is not a man of infinite patience, um, <laughs> was, uh, I thought, this is it. I'm going to get fired. This is the end of it. He's just losing patience. And so I said, just hang on. And so finally, and it was Labor Day, Memorial Day weekend, I'll never forget it, at 890 Broadway, which is a large building of, of rehearsal studios that Michael Bennett created for us in New York. We were sitting in a vast studio the size of a football field, and it was sunset. And it was just Jerry Robbins sitting at a table at one end of this football field. We were all so nervous by that point, the, creator, the rest of us, Paul Giovanni and, and all the uh, Jerry's assistants, Cynthia, we were all huddled in a corner, and we're all looking at each other going, this is it. And Jason finally came in, and to watch Jerry Robbins weep when Jason Alexander did Tevye was something that I will never, ever forget. And so finally, Jason realized, I hope, you know, that this is what it could be, you know. And so that there are certain times when, when as wonderful and, and actors, without actors, we're nothing. N n there's nothing for us to do excepting, you know, show movies. 
Uh, no, the way I, you know, sure. Let me take you back quickly because a casting, a casting agent is a relatively newcomer right. in the field of production. So how did you get to be a casting agent uh, and where did I, you come from? Quickly, I wanted to be an actor. Two simple words. I wanted to be an actor and I was not very good. Uh, and then I wanted to be a director and in those days uh, I couldn't really get the kind of jobs I wanted. And so I knew a lot of actors and I knew and I liked actors and wanted to bring that. And a very dear friend of mine who was responsible really for my New York career named Leonard Soloway, who works for Manny Aysberg, called me up and said, I'm doing a play called Lolita, adapted by Edward Albee, uh, directed by Frank Dunlop, and we cannot cast the play. We cannot cast the girl. And he said, you know actors, why don't you come in? And so I, I came in and I met Edward and I met Frank Dunlop, and the first thing that Edward said to me was, now there's a part in this play of a one-armed actor. And he said to me, do you think that you can find a one-armed actor? I said, left-armed or right-armed? And I got the job. And I was like, very good. Thank you very much. That's perfect. Ali, <laughs> what, what would be your advice and counsel uh, to people uh, beginning in the theater? And you started, as you said, relatively late. Uh, um, don't do it if you don't love it, <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's tough. But it's very rewarding also, and I don't regret ever making the decision to act. Are you staying in the theater now, or are you going to go back and forth? Or? I have to go back and forth, I think, just economics. Why is that? Well, I think economically, you know, it's sometimes easier if you get a movie or, you know. But I love the theater. I mean, I always want to work in the theater, and I miss it if I don't work in do it. Do you find, what, is, what are the differences do you find, uh, uh, this is not a simple question, but... Uh, in scaling your performances, could you talk a little bit about film, television, and, and, and theater in terms of how you treat that as an actor? Well, I think each is a very different medium. Yeah. Um, I think that when you're acting on stage, it's so immediate and the response is so different every night. And you can hear people talking to the audience and saying things. I mean, there's just nothing like it. The energy. And I, I always miss it. I, it's funny, the more I act on stage, the more I realize it's really where I feel the most comfortable in many ways. I love film for the results, and it's sort of a permanent record, you know, of your work, or body of your work, but um, it's not as immediate or as gratifying. It's all kind of chopped up, and it requires a different kind of concentration, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think if I had my druthers, I shouldn't probably be saying this, but I, I think I would rather be able to do at least a play or two a year than anything else. Let's hope you do. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Hines, what would you say about, do you have any advice, counsel? Or? Uh, well, I, <clears throat> I think that um, it's very important to, to be as well-rounded and, and, or as versatile as one can be um, to try to have a, a, a career in the theater. Uh, I feel this way, especially about African-American artists, because there aren't a lot of uh, shows every season, uh, maybe uh, two or three at the most, and maybe just one musical, which means that there aren't a lot of parts available, and there is a very large African-American uh, community trying to get work in the theater. So I think it's important to be able to certainly act, but also to be able to sing, uh, move, if not dance, and maybe even cultivate some kind of a... Of a individual skill, you know, acrobatics, juggling, anything. I know uh, there are some friends of mine who uh, 
they've gone on for parts where they knew they could act it and they could dance it but there was a 16-bar song that they couldn't sing, so they couldn't get the part. Uh, and, and I know so many people in the community that they, they, they study every, every idiom. They work to try to be as well-rounded as they can. And, um, and I encourage that because I think that, uh, that ultimately there's such a fine line between what's going to get you the part and what's going to lose you the part. Um, uh, just to... to, 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 to uh, add something on to, to what Hallie said. I think also that, that, uh, that it is a good thing to be able to move back and forth between film and theater. You know, there isn't a lot of good feeling between the film, uh, the, the people who are uh, responsible for, for theater and the people responsible for film because there's always, you know, what do you mean you want to go do a, a play? I'm offering you a film here. And you know, what a film. This is a great playwright. How could you not? But I think as an artist, it's really good to be able to move back and forth because um, the, the naturalistic aspect of acting on film is helped by projecting on the stage and vice versa. And I think that, uh, that, that all these things make up great artistry, the opportunity to, Was to the move around. Was the film the first movie that, that you did? No, uh, the first film I did was a movie called Wolfen. Which was a, like a, and and then came the Burschenkopf. No, then I did a film called History of the World Part One. Was dancing involved in, in all of the? Uh, in in the second film, a little bit of dancing, uh -huh. but it, uh, but the first dance film I did was uh, Cotton Club. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was you know I was very happy to be able to get a chance to dance on screen. Advice? Is that what Please, you and I was sitting here trying to think, um, what right have I got to give advice? You know, we're always still learning and. But I guess the, the most recent thing that I learned about myself really was uh, my, I think I had a, a wrong attitude about what to wait for to come back to Broadway, for one thing. Um, it, it's a terrible wait when you've never done anything on a Broadway stage and you get your first musical and it turns out to be Neil Simon and Marvin Hamlish and the biggest hit and, you know, we were all here basically around the same time and it was overwhelming. Uh, it was just a huge, huge success and a lot of things spun off from that and I, yes, I got married and I had three children and I did a lot of tours and I could make money, but I was waiting for that next part a little bit better than Sonia Walskin there playing our song, you know, the next step up. And uh, it never came. Uh, several parts came that I turned down wisely that were not good enough and did fail. And I thought, well, phew, at least I called that one right. But I waited too long. Um, and when I, as I said, when I came back, we live here now permanently uh, in New York again after four years in Los Angeles trying to be all the things that everybody else told me I was supposed to be, you know. You're supposed to be in television series. Don't you know how much money you could make in a television? Why aren't you in feature films? And I just follow everybody led me around for four years like this. And I said, you know, I just find it very phony. I don't find it's help. They, we're not clicking out there. What I click with is the theater and always have. And I came back and... An opportunity presented itself to me that was not what I thought I was going to wait for. You know, the lead role, you know, why aren't I doing the goodbye girl? I mean, that's all I wanted to know. And those two things came up at about the same time, as a matter of fact. Getting ready to see people for the goodbye girl and getting ready to put a brand new cast into a part I may never get again as long as I live. And I took this part for various reasons. And uh, it wasn't an easy decision at the time based on a lot of things. And it's the smartest thing I ever did. 
I can't tell you what it gives me every night, what it's given me professionally, the people that have seen me do this role who thought Lucy was a musical comp. I mean, the last thing I needed was to get into the goodbye girl after doing their playing our song. Better I should be in Lost in Yonkers so that now they have a balance of what those two things are. And I, I just kind of got out of my own way and let fate, you know, put me where I needed to be and for once just let it happen. And it was very wise. You don't always know what's best for you, you know. Great. Work begets work. Um, I have to say that my actor friends are the brightest and most well-read and, you know, wonderful people. Uh, so I, I just encourage people to constantly read and to travel because every experience you have will inform the work. And I think that there's a certain maturity. My teacher used to say it takes seven years to make an actor because I think in the beginning we all think we can do everything and we want to do everything. And maybe over a period of time we can get to do that, but I think the gift that we all have is our excitement and our originality. Nobody can do any role like you can do it. And when you can come in and say, this is what would be exciting and fun for me to do with this character and do it that way, you know that that's special and nobody else can touch that, no matter how good they would be in what they do. So I encourage people to trust their gut and their instinct and always go with what excites them. John, quickly. Quickly. Uh, uh, sorry. Do what you want. <laughs> the money will Lose follow. Weight. Love, love, if, if you're not in this profession, or really any profession, for loving it, uh, then get out of the way, because there's a lot of people who would love to have your job. Uh, they, they really would who, would. who would kill to have your job. Uh, having said that, uh, what I do is really uh, a hobby that I enjoy, uh, whether it's the guitar or the theater, what, whatever it is. It's really, uh, for a long time, I made a mistake of thinking that what I did was what I was. And what we do is not, not what we are. Uh, there's a long line of people wanting John Schneider's job, wanting Gregory Hines' job, wanting Lucy's job. There is no long line behind, uh, I'm not a parent, but I want to be one day. That, you know, hearing you talk about your kids, what a, what a great thing. The, the line behind mommy and daddy is, is, uh, is non-existent. So do that well. Let that be your profession and let, let this other stuff be a hobby. And if you love it, people will see that. You walk into a room and Jay will say, this boy, this, this guy, this, this woman really gives me something. And what that is, is the delight that you are, you are able to participate in something that you love. And if it's theater, great. Uh, if it's television, great. Uh, do it, but be a good parent. That's a good. That's what yeah. I said. Oh. We now have questions from the audience, and I'm sure that they've been very patient. Get way over here. So get ready. Hi, my name is Tommy O'Donnell, and I'm a freshman theater major at Wagner College. And my question is for John Schneider. Uh, your roles in Brigadoon and Grand Hotel are so different. As an actor, what kind of adjustments did you have to make? Um, as an actor. Uh, Brigadoon and Grand Hotel. Uh, as I said earlier, I'm one of these people that, that has to uh, believe that I'm a baron in, in the Grand Hotel in Germany. Uh, so I try to surround myself with, uh, with things. My dressing room at Grand Hotel was, was right out of the hotel. People thought it was crazy, but it worked for me. Um, in, in the show uh, in Brigadoon, I... I Wore the hats. I, 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 I kind of have a tendency to surround myself with, with props, with things that make it. The last thing I want to do and the last thing I want to be caught doing is acting. 
because I don't do it very well. Uh, I'd rather dispute that. So that's what I do. I, I try to surround myself with the with the roles, very much like somewhere in time. If you surround yourself with the with that room, uh, perhaps you'll go back to uh, 1926. Hi, my name is Diana Ekabachi. I'm also a freshman theater major at Wagner College, and my question is for Mr. Hines. Your character in Jelly's Last Jam of Morton can be classified, I guess, as a mean character. Uh, what do you do, I guess, inside you to get sympathy from the audience? Uh, well, um, I can't say that, that my intent is to try to get sympathy mm -hmm. as much as uh, my hope um, from the beginning was to somehow make him understandable. Sometimes we see uh, characters uh, on stage who are who are mean and who are unhappy and, and, uh, and cause other people unhappiness. Uh, and if we can somehow understand how they got that way and, 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 uh, and what, 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 um, what scarred them at some point, uh, I felt I'd be satisfied with that. Uh, going in, I was, I, was, I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to pull it off. But, but fortunately for me, it's not just um, my performance that, that enables the audience to understand Jelly. It's just the whole piece and the way we all come together in, in his story uh, that, that um, has enabled us to be successful in, in, in giving audiences a, a well-rounded picture you. of his experience. Thank you. Hi, my name is Pat Barr, and I've just moved here, and I've been toying with um, some booking and uh, some managing, and I'm curious about the casting director. What qualifications do you feel you need to become a casting director? I think you have to have a, a real deep background in every in every aspect of the theater. I mean, you can't just hang a shingle out and say, you know. I mean, you have to have an act, had acting training, directing ex directing experience, and you have to really know the territory. There's a lot of actors. You have to see everything, uh, be it film, television, or theater. I mean, you really have to know beyond the audition room what can that actor do, because the audition is not the whole story. You really have to understand how an actor functions. You also have to understand how to, to, to work with the creative staff so that they see it too. You know I mean? Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Hi, my name is Robert Troy. My uh, question is for Hallie Foote. Um, how do you make the poetic language in The Roads to Home actable? That's hard. Well, I think um, you don't have to do very... Uh, it's sort of all there for you, you know. It sort of takes care of itself. I think part of it is trusting um, the language and uh, not trying to interfere with it too much and just sort of letting it assert itself come out of you. Hi, my name is Lawrence Applebaum, and um, my question's for Tanya. How do you make the transition from television to stage and in such a rigorous schedule? And what are the sum of the differences? I think soap opera is the absolute most difficult medium there is. I've worked a little bit in every single one. And soap opera, you have no time. You have no direction. You have 60 pages that you have to learn in a day. And you shoot, you shoot, 60, you shoot 60 to 90 pages in a day. So you are constantly going on instinct. Um, and you learn a lot of tricks. And the nice thing about getting to work in the theater is that I can go to the soap in the day and get to do different material every day, but at night I can go and have the experience of that interaction with the audience. And for me, 
it lets me sort of sharpen different ends of, of the tools at different times. So I'm, I feel very fortunate to what have that. What are some of the tricks while you're at it? Soap opera is about making little explosions everywhere, you know, so that this kind of very flat little medium that when someone tunes in, you know, they just click the channel. <laughs> Something so interesting just happened that they want to pop in. So it's, you're kind of overdoing things a lot just yes. so that people's attention goes there. <laughs> and, and that's what it's about, really getting people's attention because the, the information is very redundant. You literally play the exact same scene five times a day because someone may tune in at the beginning and then tune out. And then they may tune in in the end and tune out. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a warm-up wow. do you do before you go out? No warm-up. <laughs> you don't warm-up at all? No. I don't want to know if I don't have it. I, in terms of singing, I don't want to know, I don't I don't know if I don't have it. I want to go out and trust that whatever is going on with me is going to work that evening for Great. the show. Hmm? What kind of a warm-up do you do? Uh, I'm beginning my warm-up right now. Well. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, uh, you know, I just, around 5 o'clock, I start um, thinking about it, and then uh, maybe I stop in at my chiropractor. <laughs> uh, you know, I have, a, like, a pretty extensive warm-up thing. But I must say that Tanya, you know, I know that she doesn't warm up, but she, she, uh, she really has incredible energy. You know, she comes out and, you know, maybe a couple of shows, a little pieces of dust. You know, <laughs> Other than that, hard press now. You know, hard press now. Gorgeous voice from you know unthinkable Molly yeah. Brown days and Annie there. When I, we were doing Annie, get your gun. And I used to be in the you know dressing room like, and I'm doing all this stuff, and he's going, "Why are you wasting it for?" <laughs> he really believed it was a total waste to push anything out there before you had to. He never warmed up. So you never know. He sang beautifully. So many versions of what they do or don't do. Here you're pretty much in agreement that you don't. I think that's a Say muscle, you know. I mean, singing certainly, like dancing, is sure. a muscle, and no ballerina would think about going out and dancing a ballet without, you know, at least doing a few bar exercises, something so it doesn't pop in the mm. middle. Well, I would think that would be your case. But yeah. the thing for me with jelly is I've never like thought of it as singing. I have, uh, at the time that I came to do jelly, I was very afraid of singing, and I have to say I never sung that song outside of an actual rehearsal. I always wanted it to be a monologue. And I never wanted it to be about hitting a note. Uh, and, and when we went into performance of that show, I had swollen vocal cords. And my uh, doctor had said, you have to take a week off. And I said, no, I'm going to have to create this part with swollen vocal cords. And that's who she's going to be. Oh, well. <laughs> we have another question. Yes, good afternoon. My name is Susan Glebo. And this question is directed to Jay Binder. Which do you prefer to use, uh, excuse me, the question is, which is better, to use stars or to discover new talent? Well, from my point of view, I would always want to discover new talent. Uh, it, it, it all depends on the project. I mean, there are certain, there are certain vehicles, because of the economics of Broadway, which are, which are, it's something to really be dealt with. I mean, there are many projects that have to have a recognizable box office name to ensure its longevity. Then there, are, then there are other things uh, that uh, that don't. I mean, the wonderful thing about Manhattan Theater Club, which, or Playwrights Horizons, or Lincoln Center Theater. Uh, I mean, these are re these are spectacular theaters that can have ensemble casts. You see, and a lot of plays on Broadway cannot afford. There has to be a reason to come, which is why I'm always like that, and a lot of times like that. Makes me crazy. We've talked about a lot of things. We haven't mentioned anything about the audience and, and uh, that very, very important part of your life. Do you, when 
do you have anything to say about the difference between a matinee audience and an evening audience? Do you have to bring forth anything different for the different kinds of audience? What, what do you give of yourself if the audience is really not with you? You have to give, you have to, whether they're with you or not, you never know why they're not with you. It's, it's an odd thing. At Grand Hotel, uh, if we had uh, what we would call crickets, <laughs> can't do it, but you, you can imagine that. If that's what you hear, if that's the kind of response you have out there, uh, you try and you try, you try to get them, well, you can't get them back when you never had them to begin with. But uh, invariably, we'd go out afterwards and hear German, Russian, Italian, French, a lot of times, uh, something I learned over the 13 months was that just because the, the people are not responding doesn't mean they're not enjoying themselves. Because we'd get surprised at the end, there'd be this tremendous response at the end of the show and nothing throughout the show. And we'd go out and they, they would all be speaking anything but anything but English and would have had a, had a wonderful time. They'd come up and, and, and you know, say, wonderful show or thank you or, or whatever. So it's, it's important from, from our side not to it's hard to do, but not to judge the audience by their their silence. Doesn't uh, that sometimes make you push too hard? To yeah, it can make you. It can it, it can make you make terror. It can by trying to do a, a good show and getting the audience's attention, you can you can blow the good show you're already doing. I think it's especially important in a comedy. It's especially hard. I mean, in, when a show you're used to hearing laughs a lot, and um, you're not going for the laughs so much, but you've. There are certain pauses that become built in almost because you know that's where people... And one night somebody doesn't respond that way and you really don't want to listen to the audience, but you're on this other rhythm and it just shakes your rhythm and you have to keep readjusting. But I just think, I love that. That's I technique. really do. That's what that, makes theater that's what theater. And inevitably, the show is longer when that happens, when, when people aren't laughing. They th people think it stretches with the laughs, but it's not true. Our shows have always been longer when there's been a smaller crowd, so therefore they're not mm -hmm. having as good a time or something. Or I don't know what the reasons, but they're not laughing. Because when people are laughing, that's when I look and I say, now what are we doing that's we helping are. this keep going? And usually it's that, it's like a great tennis game. You know, when you're getting that ball this way and somebody hits it back to you, the game goes faster when you have to keep going. I'll get it, and you go over and you pick up the I'm ball. I'm going to have to interrupt this. I do almost all the time, and, and I apologize. Oh, that's right. But it, it's, it's the time is up, and there's just never any, not enough time for all that we want to hear and all that we want to know about what it is to work in the theater. And certainly, this panel has been so giving and so knowledgeable that I would like to be able to say, please stay. Don't go to the theater. Just stay <laughs> to us. This is the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and this is just one of the seminars that we do. We have one on the playwright director, and one on the producer, and one of the unions and guilds, and one on set designs. And so we hope that we cover all of the aspects of working in the theater with all the wonderful people that are in it. It's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and I thank you all for being here. Thank you.
pedigree review because they will have known what it is as a theater. And as such, they will come to see it no matter where 